welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm about two-thirds, in fact, I'm exactly two-thirds of the way through my annual Lord of the Rings marathon. So, uh, yeah, I got that going on. For those of you who don't know, it's a practice of mine to basically to rewatch uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy every single year, right? The idea here is that I can watch it once a year, up to once per year, you know? I can watch it less than once a year, but I cannot watch it more than once a year. It's just a little rule I've set for myself. The reason is because I don't want to ever get tired of these films, and so maybe it's okay if you overload yourself on other movies. I don't want to ever get there with these movies, so I only watch them once a year. And indeed, that is what I am doing right now. And since I'm talking about that, I may as well throw in the fact that I sometimes include The Hobbit with that, and historically, uh, I usually include, like if I'm gonna include The Hobbit, historically what I'll usually do is uh, watch a, a fan edit, right? Uh, the Maple Films fan edit of The Hobbit, which for those of you who don't know, which I don't know, maybe this is most of you, could be all of you, could be none of you. But for those of you who don't know, the Maple Leaf, uh, or rather the Maple, Maple Leaf, listen to me, the Maple Films uh, fan edit, it's basically a, uh, it's an edit of The Hobbit that aspires to condense all three of The Hobbit extended editions into one four-hour film, right? The, I guess the editorial philosophy behind the Maple Films edit of The Hobbit is trying to stick to the stuff that Tolkien wrote as opposed to the stuff that Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philippa Boyens extrapolated from the Lord of the Rings appendices, and that really has nothing to do at all with this episode that I'm talking about right now, so I'm just going to move right along. The point is, I am two-thirds of the way through my Lord of the Rings re uh, rewatch, my Lord of the Ring annual Lord of the Rings marathon, and I, I've got I, I've got some observations here, um, and. Honestly, I'm really not sure how long this episode's going to be. could be, like, really long, or it could be relatively short. I guess we're just going to have to play it by ear. But one of the things that became apparent to me very early on, and guys, I'm not kidding, very early on, was that there there were certain visual differences between uh, the, the Lord of the Rings theatrical uh, cuts of the movie movies and the extended editions right and right now a lot of you may be thinking well duh the extended editions have a lot of uh well deleted scenes reincorporated into the film it's extended and lord knows i know because i for this year's marathon i elected to watch the Extended Fellowship, and, you know, I remember f saying very positive things about the Extended Fellowship of the Ring uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was during my 2017 uh, marathon. I recorded a few episodes about that, mostly because 
Houston, the city in which I live, had just gotten shellacked, or was in the... No, I, no, I take that back, no. Houston was in the process of getting shellacked by Hurricane Harvey. There, you know, I didn't have the option of going into work, and so there was really nothing to do except stay home. So I thought, well, I guess now's as good a time as any to do my annual marathon of Lord of the Rings, and so I did. And basically what I what I think I said in, in that trilogy of Trennis Magnus Jab's reality episodes that I released, I basically said, or at least I implied, <clears throat> that when it comes to the extended editions of Lord of the Rings, it really is diminishing returns, you know? The extended fellowship is unquestionably a good film right i'm not prepared to say that it's better than the theatrical version but i am prepared to say it is objectively good right it's worth your time to watch i think and that's the point the two towers it's really kind of a wash uh there are certain additions that the the extended two towers makes that honestly the additions, they tend to reinforce things that are already present in the theatrical version. The difference is, though, there are gradations to it. There are nuances to it. The extensions, uh, you know, for the extended Lord of the Rings, the additional stuff, it basically adds additional shading. It doesn't necessarily provide you with anything new conceptually. It basically embellishes and enhances that which is already there. So it's not really offering too much of anything new uh, in terms of narrative or in terms of character or anything like that. It's simply uh, deepening uh, what's already there or it, it kind of reinforces something that already exists but maybe adds a little bit of extra nuance to it or maybe a little bit different perspective on something. And so, for that reason, I think what my point was uh, back in 2017, it was you're not really gaining anything by watching the extended two towers, but you're not really losing anything either. You know, it's not a waste of time. You know, don't expect this thing to reinvent the wheel, but it's still, you know, if you're so inclined, I think it's still worth your time to do, right? So... After that, you get into the extended Return of the King. And guys, I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to be the asshole in the room that says it. I don't think the extended Return of the King is any way comparable to the theatrical version. The theatrical version of Return of the King is head and shoulders clearly superior to the extended Return of the King. So this is a pretty clear example, I think you know, Return of the King. I think this is a pretty clear example of more is not necessarily better, for that matter. More is not even necessarily objectively good. Sometimes less is more. And I think that certainly applies to Return of the King. So just to kind of sum it all up, the extended Fellowship of the Ring, undeniably, it's a winner. The Extended Two Towers, it's worth your time, but 
honestly, I don't think you're missing a whole lot if you don't watch it. And then when you get into the uh, when you when you get into Return of the King, guys, stick with the theatrical version. Best advice I can give you. So that's like I say. So when I say that when it comes to the Lord of the Rings, it's it, it's diminishing returns with these extended editions. That's what I'm talking about. So anyway. But like I say, there are certain visual differences that exist between the theatrical versions and the extended versions. And these have nothing to do with additional scenes or deleted scenes reincorporated into the movie. I don't mean that. Rather, what I mean is there are there's there are visual aesthetic differences between the two films that I think you know they may they may escape somebody who's just watching these films casually but if you pay close attention to this stuff as perhaps i do to excess you are going to notice i i think most obviously with uh with uh, the two towers these very clear very stark visual differences between the films and the most colorful scenes, I think those are probably going to be the best examples. You know, the uh, there are, vi- like I say, there are visual differences between the movies. And what I mean by that is colors, the color timing, and the just the color palette that's used in one cut of the two towers versus... Or really, I, I would say the entire trilogy. But again, it's most noticeable, at least to me, in the two towers. Um any scene that that is just a wash with a deep color that's where the the differences are are most likely to be seen and honestly the best examples that i can point to are anything that has anything to do with uh, either rivendell or lothlorien anything that has anything to do with uh, those locations that's probably the best example that i can come up uh uh, that I can come up with. And what I'm going to try to do is for the artwork for uh, this episode that you're hearing right now, <clears throat> I'm going to try to include a, uh, a, a screenshot of um, the theatrical version of the two towers and the extended version of the two towers, just so you can see when you just watch one and then you watch the other, you might not notice the subtleties, whereas if you can see them side by side, that I think is maybe when it's going to become a little bit more obvious. There are some very crucial color differences between the films. And I don't think, honestly, for everything else I could say about the extended two towers, I don't think that the visual, like the color differences, I don't think they detract from the extended two towers. But nevertheless, you know, color conveys mood and emotion and all of these other things. And so when that changes, the tone and the tenor of the cinematography, the lighting, just the shot, that's going to change as well, you know. And so this is something that I don't see people comment upon a whole lot when it comes to differences between uh, the uh, theatrical versions versus the extended versions. Typically, what people are going to uh, concentrate their remarks on are the the additional scenes that are reincorporated 
into the the uh, extended editions. Uh, just a sec. I want to get a sip off my Dr. Pepper here. All right, uh, one more. I also want to get a uh, drag off my e-cig. So anyways, um, yeah, uh, what people tend to primarily concentrate on when they uh, talk about the differences between the theatrical versions and the extended uh, versions, they typically talk about missing scenes or reincorporated scenes, or if you get lucky, you might even find a, a few comments on uh, differences in Howard Shore's uh, score, but that's typically about as far as it goes. I'm not aware of very many people out there who comment on the just the visual differences, how differently these movies look from one another. And again, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but I do want to make it clear, at least for me, it's most noticeable with the two towers, but you can see it in Fellowship and Return of the King as well. So whatever you want to do with that. Um, the other, you know, another difference is... Uh, there are a few differences in uh, the soundtracks of each film. And again, I'm not talking about Howard Shore's music here. I mean the sound mix for each film. You'll notice just a few minor little differences. And I'm operating on the assumption that the reason that these that the color differences exist and the, the differences in the soundtracks exist is because when you think about it, these really are two cuts of the same exact film. I get the idea that the theatrical version of whichever movie was prepared and then uh, mass-produced for distribution to theaters, and then either afterward or maybe simultaneously, an alternate cut, the extended edition, was prepared as well, but it was prepared as a separate process. You know, it was prepared... Uh, independently of the theatrical version. And so for that reason, you're going to find little differences and stuff like that that, you know, that uh, that that creep in. I think the way that, that it's normally done these days is a director will assemble his preferred cut of the movie and any changes that need to be made will be made to that so that there's a continuous workflow. Uh, there's going to be the same soundtrack, you know, the same sound mix. There's going to be the same color timing, same everything. It's just the extended uh, version of whatever movie gets trimmed down. And then maybe the director's version gets released later on. And I get the idea that is not what happened with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Basically, the director's cut is the theatrical cut. And then Peter Jackson decided, you know, I've got all these other scenes that people may be interested in seeing. And so I'm just going to go ahead and release those and maybe people will enjoy them. Maybe they won't. But hey, at least it'll be out there. But guys, make no mistake about this. The, the director's preferred cut of the movie, each of these movies, that was the cut of the movie that was seen in theaters. The extended editions, 
this is sort of an alternate cut. It's something that, pe again, people may be interested in, may find some value in. But Peter Jackson's preferred cut of the films, those are all the theatrical versions, guys. Don't ever tell yourself otherwise. I can, I can substantiate that. I can prove that if I need to. So anyway, but all of this technical stuff, uh, you know, just to kind of move away from that, you know, this year I wanted to, I wanted to rewatch uh, the extended fellowship because it really had been a long time since I'd seen it. And I think one of the reasons that I sort of held back from watching it was I assume I basically I, uh, I I bought the extended Lord of the Rings trilogy on iTunes and I was operating on the assumption that the the version, uh, the extended versions on iTunes, those are basically derived from the same masters from which we uh, get the the Blu-rays of the Lord of the Ring, uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's, that was just the, uh, that wasn't based on anything, guys, you understand. It was just, that was the assumption that I made. It just, it didn't, I didn't understand why the, I, the versions that are available on iTunes would be different from the Blu-rays. It just, that didn't make sense to me. And so for a while I held back because honestly, what I had heard is that there were problems, especially with Fellowship of the Ring, there were color problems. There was a, this weird green tint in the Blu-ray version of uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And it's not that it ruins the movie or anything, but it's one of those things that if you notice it, you notice it. And once you notice it, you can't not notice it. And it, and again, color conveys an idea. It conveys a, a, a creative, or at least it implies a creative decision and it conveys emotion. And so for a coloring mistake, especially with Lord of the Rings, for a coloring mistake to creep in like that, it's like, what the fuck is going on? You know, and as far as I can tell, this really does seem to be a coloring mistake. And it doesn't seem like it's something that people are really all that interested in correcting. So anyway, at least for the Blu-ray. And so again, the assumption that I made was that the masters used to create the Blu-rays are the very same masters that would be used for the film, the extended editions release on iTunes. And so I just kind of shied away from, from watching the extended fellowship. But this year I just decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? And guys, I've seen Fellowship of the Ring on Blu-ray. I don't own it, but I've seen Fellowship of the Ring on, on Blu-ray. I've seen those famous uh, screen captures on the internet that that compare the DVD extended fellowship to the Blu-ray extended fellowship, and the, that green tint is just unmistakable. And it seems like it's absent from the iTunes version. I mean, I, I was not expecting that. It was very much a pleasant surprise for me. And so... You know, for that reason, you know, rewatching the extended fellowship as I did this year, you know, for this year's marathon, you know, it really was an enjoyable experience. Now, I don't want to get going too much into, you know, sidetracking into tangential, irrelevant bullshit, but what I do when I'm really stoked to to watch a movie, what I do 
you know, when I'm at home is I, I make myself some popcorn, right? I, uh, I, I, uh, pop up a bag of Orville Redenbacher's, um, I think it's called Naturals, and the, you know, it's basically organic, is basically what it comes down to, and the flavor is simply salted, right? And then what I do is, uh, you know, because basically I want to have something as close to plain popcorn as I can, so that way I can season it the way I want it to be seasoned, and so I layer on all this buttery shit on there. And then I get a, a a big cup of milk because I like dipping my popcorn in milk because that really brings out the butter flavor even more. Just sit there and it also kind of forces you when you do it that way, when you dip it in milk, when you dip the popcorn in milk, it kind of forces you to eat your popcorn slower. And so it's going to last longer as you sit there uh, watching the movie and everything. And so, you know, that's what I did. And then I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to go all the way with it this year. And I'm watching The Extended Fellowship. I pretty much had already decided I'm sticking with the theatrical Two Towers and Return of the King. But I did want to watch The Extended Fellowship, at least. And, you know, just sitting there watching The Extended Fellowship, guys, I'm not going to lie. I just really enjoyed myself. You know, I do think it's fair to say that certain extended scenes in Fellowship of the Ring are a little bit of a slog. You know, there is a there is a rhythm and an energy to the theatrical version of Lord of, uh, of uh, the Fellowship of the Ring that the extended version sort of muddles up a little bit. But, you know, whatever. I mean, it's still, it's still worth watching, in my opinion. And so, I don't know, I just, that's what I did on uh, Thursday night, August the 9th, for anyone interested. But that's what I did on Thursday night, or actually, no, I guess that was August the 8th. Sorry. So that's what I did on Thursday night, August the 8th, right? And um, I just really enjoyed myself, you know? And it was just a reminder of, at least for me, you know, what it is about these films that I just love that there's... And, you know, I mean, I'm out... I'm, I'm kind of starting to wonder... You know, how much of my affection for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, like the films, how much of my affection for those films comes down to uh, Howard Shore? You know, I'm not taking anything away from anybody else because, you know, I love Peter Jackson's uh, directing. I love Fran Walsh's and Philippa Boyan's uh, scripts. I love the cast. I love the production, all of it, right? But, you know, for me, so much of what makes Lord of the Rings as a film trilogy awesome so much of that comes down to Howard Shore for me, you know? And so you're sitting there, you know, you're 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 watching the extended fellowship and there's all this music and stuff, and it's just ah, I just love it. It's just so good. And I haven't really made a big deal out of this on um on Facebook, but I am going, in case it wasn't clear, I am going through a little bit of a Lord of the Rings kick right now. I was originally expecting that I was gonna do my annual Lord of the Rings marathon in uh, probably sometime in September or maybe October getting into there you know that was that wasn't based on anything I just I you know if he'd asked me you know a month ago or or just whenever or hell even two weeks ago um I, I probably would have said yeah you know I'm probably gonna do it uh eh, probably around September or maybe early October or something like that and um but, 
what happened what happened is I think I've mentioned this in a bunch of episodes before. Um, I follow what I refer to as the fanboy muse, right? And I've talked at great length about this, like I say, in previous other episodes. In fact, I think I even did an episode about the fanboy muse. But the in brief, you know, the fanboy muse uh, is uh, it's just this little theory that I've got that says we are geeks. Okay. That is who we are. And so for a lot of us, we've got a pretty wide range of interests and passions. You know, there are different uh, there, there are different films that we love. There are different comics that we love or TV shows. And the central premise of the fanboy muse is that it's fine to love all of those things. But the fanboy muse says at least for me, for Magnus, you know, the fanboy muse says only only certain things are going to be your burning passion at any given time. Like, take me, for example, like right now, right? I love Smallville. But guys, I don't have, like, a deep burning passion for Smallville right now. Okay? I just don't. I, that doesn't mean I don't love Smallville. I do. I love it. Hell, I think I'm probably established at this point among the royal fucking elite of Smallville apologists to be found anywhere on the internet. But it's just like, at the same time, I don't, I don't feel any great drive to watch Smallville right now. I love um, Astro City comics, but same thing. I don't feel any great drive uh, to read Astro City comics right now. Right now... For me, Lord of the Rings is where my fanboy muse has taken me. And like I say, I haven't made a big deal about that on on uh, Facebook. But that is where I am right now, you know. I'm another thing I don't think I've made a big deal of is I'm, you know, I'm not just doing a rewatch of Lord of the Rings the the movie trilogy. This includes the book too, guys. And it's actually a project that's been going on for three years. And before you laugh at me, hear me out, all right? The reason it's taken so long is because I wanted to save the book for when I am desperate to read it. I'm dying to read it. I'm climbing the walls to read this book. That's when I want to read it. I don't want to force feed myself, you know, if the fanboy muses taken me towards, like I say, Smallville episodes or Flash comics or, or just whatever, sit there reading a book that I love, I enjoy it, it's, a, it, it, it's great, but I don't have the burning passion for it. You know, I've got to read this thing. I, the only time that I want to open that book is when I'm desperate to fucking read it, right? And so that's how I wanted, that's how I wanted to do it. You know, and that's why it's taken so long, because the fanboy muse, it's like the old saying, right? The candle that burns brightest, or rather, no, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And so, you know, when you're, at least for me, I, again, I don't know how this works for any of the rest of you, but at least for me, you know, the, the fanboy muse kind of requires that I immerse myself in something for a pretty long time. But once I've had enough, I've had enough. And now it's time to move on to something else, you know? And so 
it's you know with a film trilogy you know you in theory you can watch you you can watch the lord of the rings films over the over the course of three days which is how i usually do it some people watch them all in one day some people do their rewatch you know weekend by weekend by weekend just you know however however they want to do it but for me it's usually three days in a row you know three in three out and i would say anyway this is boring the point is you know i've i've wanted to save the book for when i'm desperate to to read the book you know i've got to read the book like i can't even think about anything else read the fucking book you know that's that's when I want to read it. And that actually kind of plays to my strength anyway, or not even my strength. I guess actually, if anything, this is a weak. This kind of plays to my weakness when it comes to um, reading really anything. I'm just kind of a slow reader just because I tend to reread maybe the same paragraph or the same sentence. I just kind of want to absorb it, work it over and kind of internalize it. I don't really like skimming. You know, and especially something like Lord of the Rings, you don't want to skim a book like that. You know, you want to make sure that you're getting the most out of everything. I mean, it took Tolkien something like 15 years to write the damn thing. And so to me, what makes the most sense is to just kind of savor it, you know, enjoy it. And so that means reading it when I'm desperate to read it, you know, when I've got to read it. And so that's why it's, it's taken so long. And the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about this is to say that it's been a really pleasurable experience reading the book this way, you know, because you can, you can just get a little bit more into the, the world building that Tolkien is doing but also just the character dynamics. I mean, my view is that when people talk about Professor Tolkien as a writer, what they what they tend to focus on is uh, the world building and just the vast and uh, impressive myth that he created. And I don't know that he necessarily gets his due when it comes to his ability to write character, you know? And a good example of that is, and again, I'm talking specifically about the book here, although obviously this has ramifications on the movie as well, the character of Boromir, you know? Boromir was no saint, that much is clear. But at the end of the day, he was a guy who had flaws, but he was still a hero. He was, there, there, there's still a nobility about Boromir. And, you know... For everything else that you can say about the guy, you know, maybe he didn't always make the exact... In fact, really, there's one moment in particular, really just one moment, where he he made a bad decision. But the rest of the time, you're really hard-pressed to find a moment where Boromir is just objectively bad. The rest of the time, he's he's noble, he's righteous, he's virtuous, he's very heroic... He just had one bad moment. And let's face it, people. I mean, we all know how evil and seductive the ring can be. And you read you, you read the book. And again, it, it this isn't a slam on the movie because I love the movies. But you read the book and for some reason, I don't know why, 
But Boromir's nobility and his heroism, and yes, his one flaw, for some reason it becomes that much easier to recognize and internalize, and I would say as much as anything to contextualize. You know, I I don't think that you're missing anything if at least as far as Boromir is concerned, I don't think you're ne you're necessarily missing a whole lot if all you know about Boromir is what you know from the movies and you never really read the book. I think you're probably getting a sufficient representation of what Boromir is all about. But you read the book, and again, it could just be me, okay? It could be me, you know, I'm the one that's kind of a weirdo here, but maybe it's just me. But for some reason, it's just, it's a lot easier for me to get my head around these characters, reading about them, and understanding a bit more about who they are as people. Now, this is not an absolute thing, all right? I think Merry and Pippin definitely benefit from being adapted into film. I won't say that they're interchangeable with one another in the book, but there's less, I think, to distinguish them in the book. Whereas in the film, you get the idea that Mary, that basically Mary and Pippin both are, even by Hobbit standards, they were a little bit ne'er-do-well, but in, in the film, you get the idea, or at least I get the idea, that Pippin was always that extra little bit more overwhelmed by his circumstances and by just the weird fucked up things that are happening all around him. He was just that extra bit more affected by that than Mary was. You know, Pippin just seemed like he was a little bit more shaken up. He was more likely to make mistakes. He was more likely to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, I think the the experiences that Mary and Pippin had definitely brought out their heroism. But I think the things that set them apart, they're more clear, at least to me, in the films. You know, the the experiences that, that Mary had seem like they really brought out his serious side, the part of him that maybe was more deeply affected by Boromir than we first ever thought, or maybe more affected by Aragorn, for that matter. He was more aware of right, wrong, his duty, and the things that he's capable of doing. Small though he may be, he is still capable of making some kind of difference, however small. And it seemed like, again, these experiences brought out the best in both of them, but it just seems like Mary rolled with, at least in the films, Mary rolled with all this stuff a little bit more easily than Pippin did. But Pippin, I think, was a little bit more of a creative thinker. He was able to see, in terms of strategy, if I do this, then these other things will happen. There were times when he could be a blundering oaf. There's just no two ways about that. The other way of looking at it, though, is that when he was truly self-aware, he was capable of making a big difference. And so... For those characters, I do think they benefit from being adapted into film. But for just about everybody else, I would say that the characterization of them, it's just a little bit stronger, a little bit crisper, 
and a little bit cleaner in the novel. And again, just to kind of tie it all back to my point that I was making just a little while ago, I don't know that Professor Tolkien necessarily gets his due in terms of his ability to write character, because I can't help but think that in the hands of a lesser writer, a character like Boromir, you wouldn't really... His virtues and his strong points would be less obvious, and in fact might even be outright eliminated altogether, whereas Professor Tolkien, he basically wrote Boromir as a guy who wanted to do the right thing, tried to do the right thing. He had one moment of weakness, but the rest of the time, he truly was as good as his word. He was, I would say, a very stir <clears throat> a very sterling example of everything that uh, the nobility of Gondor aspired to be. Now, he wasn't part of that nobility himself, not really, but he was still, nevertheless, a very sterling example of the uh, of the pride and virtue that I think Gondor was always supposed to stand for, you know? And I don't think that it's just every writer that can give you sympathy and at the same time admiration for a character like Boromir, but uh, Tolkien does it, I think, and he makes it seem rather effortless. And again, I mean, we live in a world where everything has to be like a fucking zero sum. So it's like if you compliment something else, it's almost like you have to be insulting something else. And so, you know, this isn't to say that there's something bad about Faramir or Aragorn or other human characters that are noble and, and heroic in their own right. I'm just trying to say I think uh, Professor Tolkien did a hell of a job when it comes to uh, when it when it comes to uh, Boromir, and for that matter, yes, I I would say the same thing applies for the film. There's nothing wrong with Sean Bean's portrayal of Boromir. I'm just saying, for whatever reason, these defining characteristics of Boromir they're just more obvious to me reading them on the page than seeing them on the screen. I don't know why. So, anyway. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to talk about, and I sort of touched upon this just a little while ago. This was, oh, actually, before I, uh, I even get into that, I just want to say, um, just to kind of put a bow around uh, the book discussion, I'm nearly to the end, right? I've got a, about another 200 pages of story. And then after that, I get into, a, you know, the appendix material. And elements of that are a little bit more like uh, reference. You know, they're not necessarily meant to be read, you know, line by line by line by line. Some of it is. Some of it is. But other things, maybe they're really not meant to be read in that way, you know, like the genealogies and whatnot. So, um, I don't know. So, just want to throw all that out there. I may have a little bit more to say about the book in just a, uh, uh, a few minutes. But I don't want to run out of time here, uh, so I just want to move on to something else. One of the things that, uh, just to kind of touch on something I said a little while ago, you know, about uh, uh, Howard Shore and uh, the scores for for these films, you know, I've always had an appreciation for Howard Shore's work uh, in Lord of the Rings. I never needed anyone to uh, tell me that uh, this stuff is a true blue masterpiece. Um, 
I think if like memory serves, I didn't see Fellowship of the Ring on uh, opening day back in uh, 2001. It was shortly thereafter, but it was not on opening day. I'm I'm pretty sure about that. I I could be wrong, but um, I think it was within uh, a week or something like that of the uh, of the film's release. That's that's when uh, when I saw it with my brother, my now sister-in-law, and um, an ex-girlfriend. Uh, so, like I say, my point is, I didn't need someone to tell me that Howard Shore's work was fucking amazing. But one of the things that I guess I just wasn't completely aware of is just the sheer number of themes that he created for the trilogy. Um, and what I eventually discovered is that there are over 100 identified themes or light motifs or, or 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 just what have you. Now there are a few that are unconfirmed. It's kind of from a certain point of view, you know, like are these actual themes or what? But the you know the the number of 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 uh, intentional confirmed and acknowledged themes that he that he devised is guys, it really is just fucking astounding to me that one person could come up with all of this stuff you know because when i think about like some of my uh, favorite themes from uh, the lord of the rings you've got uh that uh, you've got the ring theme you've got uh, the fellowship of the ring hero theme like the group the fellowship's uh, uh hero theme you've got uh the gondor theme uh, uh, the Rohan, I think Rohan actually has a couple of themes. I think there's a theme for Rohan itself. And then I think Eowyn has a theme of her own. And I think even, I think even Theoden has a theme. I don't know. Anyway, but anything that has anything to do with Rohan, I'm, I'm pretty much on board with, um, Isengard, Mordor. I mean, all of these, the Shire, God knows all of these different themes. And again, I mean, like some people, I don't know. I don't really understand why things are this way, but it's like for some people, it's everything always has to be like some kind of a zero sum game where if you compliment one thing, you have to insult something else. So when I say that, I think Star Wars, which I define as episodes one through six, Star Wars has something like. I don't know, like 20 or 30. The most I'm willing to say is like 50 or 60 themes. That's it. You know, whereas Lord of the Rings has over a hundred. And again, it's not that one sucks and the other is awesome. I'm just saying that that to me kind of says something about just the, just fucking insane ambition that Howard Shore walked into this thing with that there are over one, hundred fucking musical themes in the totality of the Lord of the Rings trilogy that it really is awe-inspiring, you know? Now, a a listener and a friend of uh, of the show is uh, Doug Meacham. I've talked about him on a few different occasions now, I think. 
And uh, one of the things that Doug really enjoys doing, uh, I get the idea that Doug is a really big uh, fan of uh, films, uh, film scores. He really gets into that stuff. And one of the things that he seems to do quite often is he goes to those live performances, you know, those um, scores set to film where basically an orchestra will perform according to the uh, to a film that's playing on a, a screen projection. The film itself lacks music because the orchestra is providing the music. And there's a word for that. I forget. It's like live scoring or something like that. I forget what it's called. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, it seems like Doug goes to those like fucking all the time. And I don't know if something like this specifically exists for Lord of the Rings. Because guys, I mean, what we're talking about is like all in all, I think the Lord of the Rings trilogy that works out to like nine or ten hours. And it, I just don't think there there is a symphony in the world that can go for that long. And so I think typically what you might get is more like of a, uh, they may actually, rather than uh, doing the entire trilogy all at once, they may have an orchestra that just kind of performs more like a Lord of the Rings symphony where certain scenes are scored. And it probably goes for, I would think, an hour and a half or two hours or something like that to sort of uh, uh, hit the high points of the trilogy and just sort of attempt to encompass some of these themes. Cause there's probably no way that any single musical performance can include all 100 of these themes, but it, it, I, I for one at least would be, it, it wouldn't need to be the, um, the entire trilogy you understand, but I for one would at least kind of enjoy maybe doing a, uh, or rather maybe, uh, a, 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 uh, attending something like that for, uh, the fellowship of the ring. And I don't know. I mean, you know, here again, you're still looking at something like three hours or something like that, but it's still, I don't know. I at least would enjoy it. All right. So, so put it that way. Now, before I call it a day uh, with this episode, there's just a one other thing that I want to do. And I, honestly, I think I'm going to make a bigger deal out of this, like a bigger feature out of this at some point in the future. But at least for right now, uh, what I want to do is uh, just read a little bit from uh, the Lord of the Rings book. This is uh, actually this has just been one of my favorite parts of the uh, of the book since well always uh, really um, I guess everyone is entitled to have uh, every everyone is entitled to have favorites I suppose but you know at least for me <clears throat> I should say that probably the first maybe hundred or ten or so pages of uh, this edition of uh, Lord of the Rings, the book. Eh, not quite, actually 108, but, you know, whatever. So, this is actually really my favorite part of the book. Basically, from the very beginning going up to the end of chapter 5. 
if that helps you narrow it down, right? That's really my favorite part of the book. It's basically a bunch of stuff that's uh, happening in the Shire, Bilbo's birthday party, and all that fun stuff. It's basically a lot of world building that uh, that a Tolkien is doing in this section. But in particular, there's one part of... Let's see, what chapter is this? I've got the chapter title, but... Uh, oh, wouldn't you know, it's chapter one. Okay, so it's uh, this, but this is uh, chapter one, a long expected party. And this is just one of my, I don't know about favorites, but this is just one of those standout passages for me. Uh, I, I'm not sure how much of, of all this I want to read just because I'm not sure what the legalities of that might be. But, you know, this is, I guess, fair use in as much as I'm commenting on it. And so, well, uh, whatever. Anyway. Uh, no infringement is intended, but anyway, here we go. Tongues began to wag in Hobbiton and Bywater, and rumor of the coming event traveled all over the Shire. The history and character of Mr. Bilbo Baggins became once again the chief topic of conversation, and the older folk suddenly found their, reminisc their reminiscences in welcome demand. No one had a more attentive audience than old Ham Gamgee, commonly known as the Gaffer. He held forth at the Ivy Bush, a small inn on the Bywater Road, and he spoke with some authority, for he had tended the garden at Bag End for forty years, and had helped old Holman in the same job before that. Now, now that he was, uh, now that he was himself growing old and stiff in the joints, the job was mainly carried on by his youngest son, Sam Gamgee. Both father and son were on very friendly terms with Bilbo and Frodo. They lived on the hill itself in number three, Bagshot Row, just below Bag End. A very nice, well-spoken, gentle hobbit is Mr. Bilbo, as I've always said, the, the gaffer declared. With perfect truth, for Bilbo was very polite uh, to him, calling him Master Hamfast, and consulting him constantly upon the growing of vegetables. In the matter of roots, especially potatoes, the gaffer was recognized as the leading authority by all in the neighborhood, including himself. But what about this Frodo that lives with him? asked old uh, Noakes of Bywater. Baggins is his name, but he's more than half a brandy buck, they say. It beats me why any Baggins of Hobbiton would go looking for a wife away there in Buckland where folks are so queer. And no wonder they're queer, put in Daddy Twofoot, the gaffer's next-door neighbor. If they live on the wrong side of the Brandywine River and ride again the old forest, that's a dark bad place if half the tales be true. You're right, Dad, said the gaffer. Not that the Brandy Bucks of Buckland live in the old forest, but they're a queer breed, seemingly. They fool about with boats on that big river, and that isn't natural. Small wonder that Trump that trouble came of it. I say. But, be that as it may, Mr. Frodo is a nice young hobbit. Or rather, is as nice a young hobbit as you could wish to meet. Very much like Mr. Bilbo, and in more than looks. After all, his father was a Baggins. A decent, respectable hobbit was Mr. Drogo Baggins. But there never was much to tell of him till he was drowned. Drowned, said several voices. They had heard this and other dark rumors before, of course, but 
Hobbits have a passion for family history, and they were ready to hear it again. Well, so they say, said the gaffer. You see, Mr. Drogo, he married poor Miss Primula uh, uh, Brandybuck. She was our Mr. Bilbo's first cousin on the mother's side, her mother being the youngest of the old Toot's daughters. And Mr. Drogo was his second cousin. So Mr. Frodo is his first and second cousin, once removed either way, as the saying is, if you follow me. And Mr. Drogo was staying at Brandy Hall with his father-in-law, Old Master Gorbadoc, as he often did after his marriage, him being partial to his vittles, and Old Gorbadoc keeping a mighty generous table. And he went out boating on the Brandywine River, and he and his wife were drowned, and poor Mr. Frodo, only a child and all. And you know what? Maybe that's as far into this as I need to go. Again, I don't really know what the legalities of that are. I mean, I'm not intending anything here. And in fact, if anything, uh, I actually want to comment on that. Uh, for me, th that's just one of my favorite passages in, in the whole book, and in fact, always has been. It... I guess what I like about the Shire is probably most exemplary in that passage that I just read. You know, it actually seems like the kind of place that I would want to live, you know, where people are social, but they're not really nosy. You know, they're on uh, friendly speaking terms with one another, but people mostly just stay the fuck out of each other's business. And all in all, it just, it seems to me like from a social and cultural standpoint, there's a lot that I would probably enjoy about the Shire, not least of which the fact that it's it's secluded, it's out of the way, overlooked by most people. And, you know, a lot of this, it could just be due to the fact that, you know, I've lived in Houston at this point for very close to 20 fucking years. And, you know, there are certain amenities and uh, perks that go along with living in a major metro like Houston. But one of the drawbacks is that every asshole and his brother uh, moves here looking for God only knows what. And people, number one, there's just not really much of a sense of community in a, in a lot of uh, big cities. And number two, you know, you just get just such an assortment of just fucking weirdos in, in huge cities that... I don't know. There's just, there's so much about, you know, the Shire that just seems like, oh, God, now that is a place where I'd want to live. A place where people leave you alone when you want to be left alone. But if you feel like being social, well, you can go down to the local watering hole and uh, just chit-chat a little bit. I don't know. It's just, I just, I, I guess what I'm saying is I like the culture of of the Shire, in particular Hobbiton. You know, that just seems like the kind of places, or the kind of place where I'd want to live. I would say specifically, you know, Hobbiton, as opposed to well, other places in the Shire. Not that any of it's bad, I'm just saying that for whatever reason, Hobbiton just seems like, well, that, that would be my choice. That's where I would want to live. So, if I could. I don't know how likely that is. But uh, anyway, so this whole episode is... Uh, it's getting kind of long now. Um, I guess not so long. I mean, I... Well, whatever. It's it, it, Either way, it, it's a decent length right now, and so now's probably a, 
pretty good time to, to call it a day. So I think that's uh, pretty much it for, at least for right now, for uh, this Lord of the Rings stuff. Now, guys, this is episode 299, and originally I was thinking about, you know, doing something special for, like, just in, in a kind of sarcastic sort of way, doing something special for episode 299. The reason for that is because I don't really have any ideas for making episode 300 special. You know, like, what am I going to do that's, you know, different or unusual or, or just whatever for episode 300? I haven't really figured that out. But, you know, so instead my move was going to make, what was going to be to make episode 299, like the big anniversary episode and, you know, oh yeah, the 299th episode, you know, wow, this is going to be just, but I don't know, it's just like the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized, you know what? It's not, it's only funny to me, and even I don't think it's all that amusing, so, you know, whatever. I don't, I'm just, I decided, fuck it, I'm just gonna let it go. So, um, I don't know if I'm gonna do anything all that momentous for episode 300. I may, I may not. But, um, you know, as for, you know, this thing that I do, Radio Free Isengard, this is something that I want to revisit in the future. I've got a few ideas for doing so, and... You know, my at this point, my hiatus ended quite some time ago, so now I've got, like, the time and flexibility to do it. So I, I at this point, I, I guess all I really need to do is just make a plan. So, I don't know. But at some point or another, I am going to come back to this. This is Radio Free Isengard. I just really enjoy doing it. All this Tolkien, Middle-Earth, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit stuff. I just, I just really enjoy it, and I hope you guys do, too. But uh, either way... I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So, join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. 
Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Better than rain or rippling rope As I'm on go beer inside this tote <laughs>